This week, my family and I got donuts. We love donuts. Uh, growing up on Saturdays, my family, with my siblings, we would get donuts every Saturday. Um, funny story there, actually, until we had ice skating lessons for some reason, and then we didn't get donuts on Saturday morning anymore because there wasn't time. Do you guys remember that? Yeah. But I can ice skate with the best of them. So if you guys want to challenge me to some triple pirouette back axle things, I still can't do those. But I can start and stop and not fall. Guaranteed no fall. <clears throat> no, I was grateful. I just was frustrated because I couldn't watch Saturday morning cartoons or have a donut. Either way, I learned that donuts are not the greatest thing for you, but I still love to do them with my kids because it's nostalgic for me and it's something totally fun. So I took my kids to get donuts yesterday morning. We got our donuts. The kids placed their orders. It's a very, very big deal. So they placed their orders, and it's very specific. If you don't get the right donut, the house just explodes. Uh, so I go in, and guess what I did? Ordered what they told me to order. I got the right donut. But when we came home and had the great unboxing, and the music, you can hear music actually plays when you take the lid off. It's the wildest thing. So we take it off, and then we have the donuts, and I put them on my kids' plates. Eruptions happened. It was not what they had expected or assumed the donut would look like. So it was the donut they asked for, but their expectation was not met. Their assumptions were totally shattered. It was a twisted, twisted, glazed, whatever they call braided donut. They love those. Okay, and my daughter is just a massive chocolate long john. She's very happy. But both my sons, bless them, and I totally understand it. They were saddened because their expectations or their assumptions of the donut were not met. And so we had a big come to Jesus moment, a little teaching moment there. I talked to him about expectations and blessings, and I understand the emotional side of things. However, this is the donut you will eat. You will eat this donut because this is the one we have for you. Ladies and gentlemen, the donut just wasn't big enough. That was the only problem with it because we had gone to a previous pastry shop, and these donuts are huge. And then we went to this one by our house, and it's just a normal size, like your, your run-of-the-mill breaded donut. Anyway. Have you guys ever had unmet expectations? No. You guys ever had unmet assumptions? It's miserable. I'm going to speak to you today because I believe that we are a people of response. Stephen, whether you are aware of this or not, has been taking us through a sermon series that's called Setting the Spiritual House in Order. And he's talked to us about being people of dominion or kingdom, of covenant, of power, of hope, of consecration. Last week, And so I'm going to continue with this installment very easily more, on a more practical basis of being a people of response and worship. What does it look like for us to see who, who God is in his majesty and glory and then respond appropriately? What should our response be? You see, unmet expectations come with a response. Typically, it's negative because its focal point is you, not the situation. See, they still had a donut. It's exactly what they asked for, but it didn't meet their expectation of what it should look like. I want to challenge you in, in humility this morning. I think oftentimes we have large expectations of what God should do for us. And we ask grandiose prayers, but then when he answers those prayers, it's not exactly how we ordered it. And I want to push back on it and say it's not about us. It's not about our expectations. It's not about our assumptions. It's about God, his glory, and what he is doing in this world. Because it's all about Jesus. We sing about it. We have communion that's centered around it. I'm going to preach about it. But really, if it doesn't take effect in your heart, there's no difference. Holy cow, that's little. 
Didn't look like that on the computer. People of response, setting the spiritual house in order. Let's talk today about what our response is, and I'm going to show it through two figures. One is Moses and Jonah. Just go with me on this little ride through the Bible, and we're going to end with Jesus. It's going to be wonderful. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we come under the authority of your scripture, we humble ourselves and say you are the one that's in control. You are the one in complete authority. You are the one who owns all things. And so, Lord, we submit to you. As we talk about our response today, oftentimes, Lord, it's, it's the same things that we've heard since we were children. But, Lord, when we actually evaluate our heart, are we living them? And so I ask that you would please uh, open, open our minds, open our eyes, open our ears to be hearers and doers of the word, that we'd respond in an appropriate manner that brings glory and honor to your name today. Thank you, Jesus, in your name we pray. Amen. So we're going to talk about being a people of response. I'm going to ruin the entire sermon right now. When you encounter the care of God, we respond in three ways. Very simple and the same thing you've heard since you were children, but I'm going to push on it in a different way today. We respond in worship. Everybody put your hands up this way. Respond in worship. Very, very good. We respond in trust. Put your hand out like you're going to grab my hand. We trust God. And then we respond in obedience. Point, point, point. I'm a teacher now, believe it or not, which is weird. I did not think I was ever going to be a teacher. And I have found out that the attention span of most people in general is approximately seven minutes. And if I don't do hand motions or a little jig up front or dance or yell or something, that they are lost entirely. So I'm going to do the same thing with you all today. We're going to worship. Everybody say worship. This is an action for you to remember. Okay, we are going to trust. That's putting out your hand and grabbing the Lord's hand. I trust you and obey the command to do likewise. See what I did with my finger? You shouldn't point at people, though. So don't, don't do that publicly, but that's how we're going to do it. So I'm going to begin in Jonah. We're going to read a story out of Jonah, and then we're going to go to um, Exodus. So it should, hopefully it'll work up there. This is, this is Jonah 3, and I'm going to start at the very end, actually in verse 9. So we all know the story of Jonah. Jonah was commissioned by the Lord uh, to go to Nineveh to basically tell them to repent and to come back to him. Jonah says no. He goes the opposite direction, Tarshish. Um, bad things happen on the boat. The guys say, cry out to your God. Everybody tries to cry out to their God. Jonah gets thrown overboard, and immediately the sea is stopped. Right? Where does Jonah go? Belly of the whale. All right? He's swallowed. Interesting response there, though is that the men are the ones concerned about perishing, the sailors, and they're the only ones. You, if you look throughout the book of Jonah, it's always the uh, non-believers, those that are not following Yahweh, are the ones concerned about perishing. So they call out, wake, wake up, we got to do something, or we will perish. And as soon as they throw them overboard, they worship Jonah's God, and they give a sacrifice. Totally amazing. Then we go on in the scene. Uh, he is, Jonah in the belly of the whale cries out to God. And the, then the, the fish actually vomits him. It spits him up onto the shore. We all know how that works. And then um, he says, fine, I'll do this. He goes to um, Nineveh, but reluctantly, because he doesn't want to preach the word there. And that's where we actually kind of catch up to the story. So Jonah's going to Nineveh. And he says, um, Jonah began to go in the city a day's journey, and he called out, Yet forty days, and Nineveh shall be overthrown. And the people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast, and they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. Uh, that's the shortest sermon. It's got to be the shortest sermon ever. And the entire city, in essence, believes. Man, the Lord is 
The Lord is awesome. When he's going to do something, he's going to do something. You know what I'm saying? So trust in what he's doing. That's all he says. Jonah began, went into the city, yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown or shall be destroyed. And they, they repent, they confess, the king declares a decree that everyone should do this. They put on their sackcloth. Here we are. Jonah 3, verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent and turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. That's the king of Gen. King of Nineveh declaring, again, concerned about dying. Jonah's not concerned about it. But the pagan king is. And so they, re they repent, expecting the Lord to relent and be merciful and kind. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster he had that he had said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That, that is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? This is an amazing little text here, actually, this, this whole idea of it displeased Jonah exceedingly. In the Hebrew there, that's, that's in the root word there is evil. And so he, his, his evil from the evil of the prior king, it's flipped. They repented of their evil, and Jonah picked it up. And so this is a wild kind of interaction here between Jonah's response and the people's response. It's what you want as a prophet, as a minister of the Lord, is for the people that you talk to to respond in a favorable manner. Oftentimes, the prophets, they rejected what they said. Here, Jonah barely even said anything, and the whole country is saved. It's amazing. What in the world? Uh, but Jonah's not happy about it because the benefits of the Israelite community is now being extended towards other nations. You were you my God. You were my people. How can they now have what I have? How do they participate in things that were for us? The attitude, the whole, the whole perspective is off, you see? And so this is why Jonah did not want to go initially, because he knows God would save them. He knew that if he said something, God is merciful and he's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He's abounding in loyal love or steadfast love. And so if he did it, his enemies would be saved. And I'm not about that. They can't be like us. There's a distinction here. Man, that in and of itself is something we need to talk about. That's later. You know what I'm saying? So this is Jonah. I'm, I'm, going, I'm pulling from Jonah, but you've got to be gracious to me today. Because if you truly have to understand what, what his response is, we've got to go back to Moses and Exodus. You see, because he, which is one of the most commonly uh, used expressions or quotations of the Old Testament is exactly what Jonah is saying here. Um, this is why I made to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This comes straight out of Exodus 34. And it's the first uh, definition of God's character. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me. If you don't, I should have it on the, on the projector. But we're flying to Exodus 34. And this matters for you to know what's happening here. Because um, as we look at these things, it shows us or it reveals to us the character of God, who God is. 
And if we don't fully grasp that, I don't think we fully understand what's going on here that Jonah was fleeing from. So once again, this is a definition of the, the character of God. Hold on, everybody. Here's what I tried to do today. Use technology, and it was the dumbest choice of my week. But you know who we serve? A God who is compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. See how I did that? Oh, my gosh. I'm starting over. Jerry, thank you, brother. When I got excited and started getting, you know, flipping stuff, I turned it off. I actually know how to use it. So anyway, that's cool. Don't worry about it. Hey, Ken, you with me? We have to do this at school every week, and this is half the class period. Maybe for, maybe for you, maybe for me. All right, we're in Exodus, Exodus chapter 34. Here I am. Let me get there. Let me get there. My apologies. We're going to start in verse 5. Okay, background. Moses goes up to Mount Sinai to receive the commands, the commands of the Lord, the Ten Commandments, right? What happens, Bible students, when Moses is on the mountain? They build a golden calf, right? Moses is gone for 40 days and 40 nights, and in their mind, that's eternity. Kind of like today. It's teenagers, I'm telling you. But let's just be honest. Uh, he's gone for a very long time and doesn't know what to expect. That's way too long for us. And so what is the response? we got to figure out who's actually we're going to serve. Let's build a calf because this God is the God that brought us out of Egypt. Yeah. All, this, all the plunder and all the things that God blessed them and gave them with to establish their economy yeah. and for his glory, they used to put into a calf. And so that's what they're doing. When Moses comes back down, of course he's irate. What, what kind of response? What are you doing? Yeah. You know, and we have got to recognize I'm, I'm no better than these people you got to recognize they've been living in Egypt for 400 years. So their understanding, even though they just encountered the power and majesty of God through the plagues and the Red Sea and all these things, what do they know? They go back to what they know, and it's idolatry. It's finding a tangible. It's having something that I can see and touch and feel. We're going to look at that when we talk about worship in a minute, but it doesn't work. Okay, so uh, the Lord goes up. He intercedes on behalf of the people in the tent of meeting and then also then goes up to Sinai to receive new commands. And this is where the famous part of Scripture he says, God, show me your glory. And this is where God passes before him and shows him his glory. And then Moses' face is just shining. What an amazing encounter of God. But this is where he uh, communicates who he is. So Moses, I'm going to start a little earlier than what I have up there, but this is four. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first, and he rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, or the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshiped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please 
Let the Lord go in the midst of us for as a stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. This passage is, is one of the most widely used texts in the Old Testament throughout Scripture. And so it's amazing because you see firsthand the connection of the one story of the Bible, first and foremost, that this encounter would happen, but then that would be trans. It would be communicated through all these different authors in their own gifts, abilities, and settings. All right, so we have it. Joel uses it. It's in Jonah. It's all throughout the Psalms. Uh, it even is then in the New Testament. I'm going to show you a little spot in John. But an amazing reality where we see uh, the goodness of the Lord and what he's communicating and showing his people. So the Lord descended here, and this is what we call... Um, there's a literary way of writing that's called a chiasm, and so there's like two comparisons that are taking place in this statement. If you guys can see this, it's a God that's compassionate and gracious, slow to anger. So it's defining who he is, and then it goes on again in abounding in loyal love and faithfulness. And so these two are the beginning of the definition of God's character. Then it's paired with another example. He's a keeper of loyal love for thousands. So there we connect the loyal love and who he is. He's the forgiver of iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will surely not clear the guilty. He's the visitor of the iniquity of the father upon the sons and the son's sons until the third and fourth. Third and fourth meaning generation, right, typically. This is not, this is not necessarily declaring that the sin of the previous generation is given over for three and four generations to the next. The Lord forgives. It's when there's an unrepentant heart and they continue in the sin of previous generations, the Lord still visits, visits them and punishes them in judgment. What I want you guys to glean here is the overwhelming attribute of God is compassion, grace, mercy, that he's slow to anger, that he has loyal love, and he is faithful. You see, the loyal love of a thousands, again, meaning generations, far surpasses what he visits the iniquity on the third and fourth, of course, generations. So this isn't just, just straight, he has mercy for a thousand generations. He's trying to say the abundance of his mercy, the abundance of his steadfast love, his faithfulness is far greater than that of the anger and wrath that will be experienced by the judgment of sin. But of course, if you're a follower of Christ, a follower of Yahweh, repent and be obedient. That's the call of this. Anyway, I wanted to show you this text because I think it matters. I think my slides went down, and that's totally fine because we have the Word of God. Um, in Exodus 34, then he makes these comparisons because God is compassionate and gracious, gracious when uh, Moses is interceding to try to find grace in the eyes of the sinners. You see, God is slow to anger, and he shows his patience with the Israelites as they're grumbling in the beginning of Exodus, and then, and then as they violate the terms of the covenant. God is abounding in loyal love and faithfulness because God is compelled to remain faithful to his own covenant promises that we see in Exodus 32 and 34. He forgives iniquity and transgression. Moses' last act of intercession is to ask God to forgive the Israel's sin in the future. That's, ver that's 34 verse 9 where it says, And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us to stiff-necked people and pardon our iniquity and our sin and take us for your inheritance. You see, because the, what God had said was, I'm done. These are stiff-necked people and they will not listen. I'm going to remove myself from them. And so Moses is interceding for the people and says, please don't. We need, we need you. 
lead us, guide us, direct us. And so here, um, Moses is, is interceding and saying these things, forgive the iniquity, and please be with us. Um, and then he won't let the innocent go guilty. God allows Moses to send the Levites to strike 3,000 idolaters of their own people. There's a judgment on those that built the idol and that, and that led the people. The priests were to lead the people in worship of Yahweh, and they led them to these idols. And so they were punished. And the last thing, he repays sinful generations to the third and fourth, but keeps loyal to thousands. God will deal with each generation as it deserves in their obedience and faithfulness to him. That was a little chart I had for you. It would have made more sense than me just spouting things off, and you would have been enlightened, like, whoosh, now I get it. But you know what? That's okay. So what is our response to God's character? If I'm going to boil it down, it is worship and repentance. You want to be a people of response. We talked about being consecrated. We talked about having power. We talked about putting our spiritual house in order. And if we want to do these things, we need to be a people of worship and repentance. What did, what did Moses do when he encountered the character of God? He worshipped. If you look, and Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And then he repents on behalf of the people. Please don't leave us. Forgive our iniquity. What did Jonah do when he encountered and remembered the character of God? Remember, it's the same text. Jonah repeats it. He said, this is why I didn't want to go, because I know your character. Because I know my enemies would be forgiven and would be given the same benefits of covenant love that I received. And that can't be. So we have here one model of what it looks like to rest in the presence and character of God in worship and quickly bowing and repenting. And another model, when your agenda is set towards your own perspectives and expectations in life, you are distracted, not understanding the truth applied, but only for how it benefits you. We live in a kingdom that is far greater than New Covenant Church, a kingdom that is far greater than St. Louis, Missouri, far greater than the United States of America. You see, the, 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 the story that we sang when we were kids, that he holds the whole world in his hands, is actually true. Everything that he created and spoke into existence out of nothing and put his glory upon, he rules and reigns. We need to recalibrate our thinking to see not only the bigness of God in his character, but to see that the plan includes more than just you and I. How can we walk in the mission of God to be faithful, to see others be saved that are not like us? Maybe that are a frustration to us. Maybe that are our enemies or are hard to love. Because the Lord has more in store for his kingdom and his glory purposes than just our attitudes. Lord, help us. I put myself in that same spot. So God's character reveals his glory, his sovereignty, and his plan. Ooh, there's my fun chart. That's all right. You don't need it. God's character reveals his glory, his sovereignty, and his plan. You see, in, his, in the announcement of his character, we actually see the embodiment or the manifestation of that is who will come, Jesus Christ. Jesus is the all-gracious one. He is slow to anger when he's accused of doing, doing all the wrongs when he's done nothing wrong. He's the one that is compassionate and gracious, living his life on the fringe of society. The embodiment of God is Jesus Christ. And so we see the very character of God lived out in the words, in the example, in the testimony, in the discipleship of Jesus. And that's where we take our pulse, that's where we take our step to live like. 
But as we move forward here, God's character reveals his glory, his sovereignty, and his plan. So how does this relate to Jonah? How does this relate to me? What is your response to the character of God? We saw that Moses quickly bowed and worshipped. We also saw that Jonah was angry. So what is your response to the character of God? We need to be a people that don't just hear these things and let it fall upon hard soil. But till the soil of your heart, that when you hear the gospel afresh and when you hear the character of God, it creates in you this desire to not only bow and worship, but to see the influences that you have in life reflect and look like the character of God. Because Moses comes down off the mountain with a new set of commands and leads the people towards repentance and towards then going to the promised land, just like God initiated. And he, through the, through the law and, and then through the prophets, the things that God instilled in him, brought the people from a people to a nation. Joshua actually is the one that gets to do that, but it's the beauty of what the Lord has for his people. We must be a people that follow the Lord and do three things. We worship... Everybody say worship. worship. There you go. We're together now. We worship. First response. We fall on our face like Moses because the glory of the Lord is incomprehensible. Because honestly, when you encounter the majesty of God, you are, you are left speechless. Because in reality, when you see the bigness of the creator of the universe and how he speaks about himself and how that invades all of life and it dispels sin and brings light and how righteousness is shown through because of who he is, you have no other response but to worship. And worship is not a Sunday morning lifting the hands, right? Worship is your act of living before the face of God daily, that you would represent him in the workplace as a parent, as a husband, as a wife, as a worker, whoever and wherever you are, how you live life before the face of God. That's worship, right? Fall on your face like Moses because, he alone, because the Lord alone is worthy of our worship. Praise the Lord. Oh, man, the Lord is so good to us. Our response should be a pla to place our affection and devotion in the Lord, not for what we get, but for who he is. What does your time say about what you're investing in? Psalm 115, I would encourage you to read that this week. We went over it with the middle schoolers last week in class. Um, but it is, it is a powerful psalm. And it talks about um, basically idols and how they have mouths, but they can't speak. They have hands, but they can't touch. They have feet, but they can't walk. They have ears, but they can't hear. And then the, here it is in the middle of it. It's like a punch in the gut. Those who worship them will be like them. And so I want to challenge you today to say, what does your time say about your priorities? What does your money and where you spend it say about your intentions? What does your affections or where you show compassion say about who you are? Because if we're truly going to be followers of God's character, then the way that we live that out in the world should reflect him first and foremost. Here's an easy test, and I'm going to confess to you before we start this, I'm guilty of it. What is the first thing you do when you, when you wake up in the morning? Anybody? Brush your teeth? Hit the snooze button. Hit the snooze button on what? <laughs> Who uses an alarm clock as their, has their alarm still? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I touch my phone, very first thing I do, because my phone is my alarm. What is the very last thing you do before you go to bed at night? 
brush teeth, get in bed, say goodnight to my bride. I touch my phone because it's my alarm clock. But everybody knows as soon as you touch that thing, it sucks you in. So to set your alarm takes 15 minutes. You know what I'm saying? Huh? After five videos later and a couple funny jokes and showing some memes to my wife, then I'm going to bed. But what am I ingesting? Listen, I'm not condemning you. I'm saying these are easy practices in our life that we have made an everyday occurrence. But what is it forming in you? What is it shaping in you? What is it proclaiming through you? Maybe we change, we change the habits to say, Lord, I, I actually want to, I'm going to read a psalm before I go to bed each night. So I'll set my alarm and then I'll pick up the Bible. Now that does not save you. You are saved by faith alone in Jesus Christ. Amen? Yeah, yeah it resets your focus. It resets your thinking. It puts your, your demeanor, your thoughts, your everything onto the Lord. Lord, when I sleep, I want visions. I want dreams. I want to know you more. I want to be like you more. So that when I arise, I'm ready for the day you've given me to serve you. And I'm going to rise in prayer. And you know what? I'm going to finish that psalm again. There's an example, right? What do you do with your time? And what does it say about you? Because according to Psalm 115, you become like that which you worship. Worship is the giving of our entire self, our thoughts, our emotions to God's use. All of life is an act of submission and an act of worship. Our service to God is centered on a, our service to God is not centered on a time or a temple, but is done whenever or wherever we are because we are the temple of God. Praise Jesus. Number two, trust. Everybody put your arm out. Grab my hand. Boom. We trust in God. We worship first, and then we trust him. We trust that what the Lord has planned for us is the best plan possible. It's a surrendering of your ability to make something happen and to fully rely upon the Lord as your sustainability and your strength and your assured reliance on the character of God, his ability to come through in times of need, his strength or truth, or ability to make something happen. This is trust. If I could explain it this way, it's, it's helping my kids learn to swim. That's trust. When you get a child who is terrified to be submersed in water on the edge of a pool, and you ask them to let go of all facets of their, of their ability to save themselves and to jump into my arms, that's trust. We've all heard the word. We all know what worship is. We all know what trust is. But are you actually trusting? Because what does the child do? They jump, but immediately they turn and they grab the side. I was like, no, babe, jump into my arms. Let go of everything else and just jump. I will catch you. And so after a couple, three, four times of trying, the child fully releases and trusts the parent. Right? The beauty of the gospel is that God is strong enough. That Jesus Christ is bigger. That the power of the work of Jesus on the cross is far greater than the power of sin and death. So you have the ability, as you trust in the Lord, to let go of what you're trying to hold on to. Money, status, retirement, church growth, whatever it may be in life. Wherever the Lord's placed you, wherever he's put you. And to rely fully upon the grasp of God. You see, because his, his grasp on you is far greater than your grasp on him. He's not going to let you go because he's faithful. He's steadfast. He has loyal love. He's compassionate and he's gracious. As we define God, it has to take root into how we live our lives. 
All right? So do you really trust the Lord? Are you still trying to hold on to something? And my last thing is obey. Nobody's supposed to point. Do you guys follow what the Lord says, or are you running to pursue your own agenda? In this example, I am not going to speak bad about a prophet of the Lord. Jonah is called by God. And there is a point to this, and, there's a po- and he had a facet. The Lord used him to save an entire country. Praise the Lord. That's not my intention. But don't, don't have an agenda like Jonah. Just bow and worship like Moses. Don't try to hold on to something that you think is so right that it really repels everyone else away. But just obey the Lord. Comply with the command. Obedience is complying with the command, the direction, or the request of a person of law, or submitting to the authority of it. Now, I just said two really bad words in this culture. Number one, submission. I might as well have just said a curse word up here because nobody submits anymore. But the call of the gospel is for you to trust, which means you have to submit under the authority of a God who's greater than you. Right? And if you're going to worship something, you, I, I would hope that you're wanting to worship something that is far greater than you, that has more authority than you do. Because what's the point? So as you worship, as you trust, and as you obey, it's really a submission under his authority to be like him in this world and to follow what he has for you, not your own agenda. Right? So it's, it's submission to the, we are speaking about submission to the authority of the Lord and his word. So that as we see the God of Scripture, as we behold His character, that He has steadfast, loyal love, that He is gracious and compassionate, that He has mercy overflowing, we want to be like that in the world and submit to what He has for us. This obedience is not just because we can't have fun in life. And that's what people, they see law, and they say obey, and that means no more fun. I have a lot of fun. Because I know that I have protection from my Father. I know that as I obey Him, I will truly experience what it means to flourish in life. And I know that I'm maturing as I go along. I'm not staying in that, that, that high school mindset of just do the rights and the wrongs, and then that's where you stay in that little black and white box. But I say God is not a God of boxes. That's me. That's my agenda I put on Him. He has broken all barriers far greater than what you can see, think, or imagine. And so as you interact in life with the character of God in obedience, it matures you and brings you to far greater things than you could ever think or imagine. Amen to that. I like to think of this in terms of driving on a road. If you drive on the road and follow the directions, you'll get to your destination in a timely, safe manner. I might even have fun while I do it. I can listen to some music. I could bump some tunes. Right? I'll sing the songs, do a little carpool karaoke, tell stories with the people. It's fun because I know that I'm in the correct parameters. I'm living in the correct orders of life. But if I try to veer off the road and take a gravel path that seems to be quicker, if I just looked at the map and where it would take me, I know that I'm going to encounter incredible anxiety because I don't know what's coming. The road is so bumpy, I'm going to be... too concerned about what it's doing to my car and then the cost that's going to be to fix it because it's not meant for a gravel road, right? Then I'm going to think about where is this actually taking me because it doesn't look like it's going anywhere. All I see are trees and cornfields. You see what I'm getting at here? If you stay in the path the Lord has directed you in, there's flourishing. 
There's safety, there's protection, there's maturity. But if you veer off the road to try to do something in your own strength because you have your own agenda, there's confusion, there's chaos, there's fear, there's anxiety. Trust the Lord, worship the Lord, obey the Lord because he's worthy. This is our response. So do you treat others the way God treats you? Maybe I'll put it this way. Do you have a heart like the heart of God? This is a very difficult lesson that I, that I learned um, because when it comes to parenting, it's like the great sanctifier or any, any relationship, let's just be honest. But especially as I, as I am directing my children, it's easy to yell. Everybody can yell. It's easy to, it's easy to discipline. Everybody can discipline. You've got to do it correctly, right? That's a good thing. But, but am I loving my children in the way that my father loves me? And if I reflect on the day and say, Lord, as I reflect on the way that I responded to my son in this situation and in this situation and the way I responded to my wife in this situation, and if you had done that to me, I wouldn't want any part of it because that's not the gospel. So I'm going to challenge you for a second. Do you love others out of the character of Yahweh? Or are you loving people and treating people in your own character? and your agendas, and how they can benefit you, and what you can get out of them. It seems to me like if we're going to imitate and follow Jesus Christ, we want to be like Jesus. And he's the embodiment of God, the embodiment of the Father. He is slow to anger, and he's compassionate. He's long-suffering. That's how we should act towards one another. That's how our response should look true life of worship that is lived in trust and obedience and repentance to Almighty God. So we have examples in the word, but I'm going to end with this last example that I think is, is beautiful. This is straight out of John. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the one and glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. See, where is that taken from? character of God out of Exodus 34, speaking about Jesus Christ. From his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. From the, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. As you leave today, I ask that you would be a people of response. And by that I mean worship, trust him, and obey him. May you live your life in the same way that God lives his life towards you. May your response towards other people, anyone you interact with, be from the character of who God is, rather than your own agenda and your own motivation to make things happen. That you would be gracious, abundant, and loyal in love. Because we serve a good God and we want to imitate him. Praise Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we are honored today to be your servants. And we just confess, Lord, in areas of our life where we have put our own agenda above yours, where we have responded out of our own quick anger and frustration instead of being steadfast and having loyal love, being gracious and merciful. Lord, forgive us, please. We want to be like you. 
We want our families to be like you. We, we, want, we want our neighbors to see you when they see us. We want our kids to grow up in just sheer devotion to you because they're enamored by seeing your majesty and, and wanting to worship. And so, Father, we're so grateful for your word that reminds us and resets us, that convicts us by your Holy Spirit. And so we don't stay, Lord Jesus, with our chins on our chest. But we say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for a picture of the gospel. Thank you for your character that we can be like you in this world and that you've empowered us to do so by your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we move from here in obedience now and in worship because we trust you and we want to be like you. In your holy name, Lord, we pray. Amen. Praise Jesus.